This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. The first thing I want to note uh, and emphasize is that the New Testament connects blessedness and eternal life in a very striking way with seeing, with vision. So you have in 1 John 3, a very formative text for Christian understanding of eternal life. Uh, we're all familiar with this text. Beloved, we are God's children now. It does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. When he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So seeing is connected to being like the one who will appear. And in this context, that's clearly Jesus in glory. It's Jesus appearing to us, being seen by us as he is. So seeing is connected to being like him, to the perfection of our resemblance to him and of our union with him. And seeing is also connected, or if you like, being like him is connected to his appearing. We cannot see him until he appears. So seeing depends on appearing, and the appearing is not present. Right? He does not presently appear to us as he is. He is present to us. And he is present to us as he is in his full reality, above all, or most basically one might say in the Holy Eucharist, but he does not appear to us as he is. He is present to us as he is, but not present such that he appears to us as he is. There's a prayer before communion, which is attributed uh, to St. Thomas. Father, give to me your beloved son, whom I now propose to receive. This is my rough translation as we go along. Whom I now propose to receive under a veil, okay, to see face to face, perpetually, perpetual contemplare facie, okay? So, in the Eucharist, we see Jesus as he is, sorry, Jesus is present as he is, but we do not see him, he does not appear to us as he is. So, when he does become present to us in this way, when he becomes present to us so that we see him as he is, we will have reached the goal of our life. We shall be inheritors of eternal life. What we shall be will then have appeared. Our own blessedness, our own eternal life. When he appears, it shall be our eternal life, and we shall be blessed. But for now, we 
live in hope and not yet in the reality that we hope for. To live in hope, as St. Paul says, is precisely to wait and to long for what is not seen. There's a direct contrast in Romans 8 between hoping and seeing. 1 Corinthians 13 makes a similar point, and it connects seeing to knowledge and to understanding. St. Paul says, now we see dimly, as in a mirror, or in the pre-communion prayer, under a veil. Then, face to face. Now, I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known, or fully understood. So what we long for, we do not yet see, our very salvation. At present, as Paul says, we walk by faith and not by sight. That's from 2 Corinthians 5, which we talked about this morning. And just because we walk by faith and not by sight, we walk in hope and do not yet see. Just because of that, we are, Paul says, away from the Lord. We are not with the Lord in the way that we hope to be with him. What's that way? Well, fundamentally, seeing him as he is. So for us to attain eternal life, something radical has to happen. A profound change has to occur. Faith has to give way to sight. Not seeing, believing, and hoping has to give way to seeing. At the same time, and inextricably tied up with this, Paul gives us another notion of what eternal life consists in, alongside the notion of seeing not opposed to it, but I think also not reducible to it either. Eternal life is being, 2 Corinthians 5, eternal life is being at home with the Lord. Eternal life is being with the Lord while at present we are away from the Lord. Eternal life means being with Jesus. Now again, in one way, we are already with him because he is with us. As St. Thomas beautifully says of the Eucharist, friends want to be close to friends, and for material beings, human beings, to be close to one another means for their bodies to be in proximity to each other. So Jesus makes himself present to us in his body in the Eucharist because he has made us his friends. He's fulfilling the friendship with us that he has declared in John 15. But while we are with him, we are not yet with him in the way we long to be so that we see him as he is. So eternal life means being with the Lord as he is, seeing him as he is. And in one fundamental way, this has yet to happen. We have not yet seen him as he is. Now, the New Testament also emphasizes, and I've already begun to touch on this, that we are with the Lord in a real sense. And that means that we already enjoy eternal life in its beginning. 
that eternal life has begun in us. St. Thomas beautifully says in his definition of faith in Secunda Secundae Article 4, if you want to look up the, uh, the beautiful text, um, that faith is the incohatio vitis eterni, okay, vitae eterni. It is the beginning of eternal life. First Peter says, First Peter 1, not having seen him, you love him. How has eternal life begun in us? It's begun in us through faith, but not through faith alone. I was a Lutheran once, so I know what that means. Not through faith alone, but through faith filled with love, faith formed by love, as the Catholic tradition says. Not having seen him, you love him. The love we have for the Lord, even now, though we are away from him, the love we have for him, the love that is poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, Romans 5, that love is the love we will have for him in all eternity if we attain to seeing him as he is. We've already begun to have the love for him which will exist forever, which will as 1 Corinthians 13 beautifully puts it, and I already mentioned this passage this morning, the love that never ends. We already live in, if we live in charity, the love that will never end. So in eternal life, faith will end, as Paul says. Faith will end, and it will give way to sight. And hope will end, because we will have the sight of what we hope for. And hope for what is seen is not hope, as Paul says. But the love we have for the Lord now never ends. It only grows. It is perfected. It reaches its fullest intensity when we see the Lord face to face. But it's the love that we have even now. Eternal life consists, to put it in biblical terms, for a Catholic vision of it, eternal life consists in this union of love and vision. We have the love already, though not to its full pitch of intensity. We still long for the vision of the one we love, and that will be our eternal life. That is to say, this is what will give us blessedness. This is what will make us happy. The title of the talk is the subtitle, if you like, Eternal Life and Beatitude. Okay? Beatitude may not be a term that you throw around every day. Um, it's just Latin for happiness, okay? or one of the Latin terms for happiness. There are a number of them that have different inflections and connotations. So eternal life and happiness. It's crucial to see, I think, that our eternal life consists in seeing and loving the Lord fully, being united to the Lord. It consists in, in love and vision, being united to the Lord in what St. Therese from this morning calls the full possession of him and being possessed by him. And this brings happiness. Okay? This brings beatitude or blessedness to us. But it's a consequence, or if you like, a byproduct, our happiness, that is, of our union with the Lord, of our immediate union in love and knowledge, and which is to say vision with the Lord. Um, 
Just as we don't do the corporal works of mercy because they make us happy or make us feel good, we do them because they're what the Lord requires of us. So we don't seek beatitude because we want to be happy. We seek beatitude by seeking greater intimacy, greater union with Jesus. So the first basic point here then, uh, now concluded, is to understand the importance of seeing for the idea of eternal life and blessedness in uh, the Christian and certainly uh, especially the Catholic understanding. Now, the second question here gets a little more technical, not hugely more, but a little more. Uh, what exactly is it that we see? What exactly is it that we see in such a way that it gives us blessedness? When faith gives way to vision, to seeing the Lord, what do we see? The answer to this question is both essential to a Catholic understanding of eternal life and the subject of intense controversy within the Catholic tradition uh, in the history of Catholic doctrine and theology. So we're going to do a little bit of history here, but it's not, uh, it's not merely past history. So cast your minds back to the year 1336, when all of you were young. <laughs> in the year 1336, Pope Benedict XII issued a bull, or what would now be called an encyclical, on the beatific vision, on seeing God and eternal life. Now, 1336 may seem like a long time ago, and it may, Benedict XII may not be a household name, um, even in, um, uh, in serious Catholic households these days. Um, it may seem like we're reaching into the obscure uh, history of Catholic doctrine. But in fact, this text remains important. Um, it has surely never been superseded in uh, Catholic teaching, uh, conciliar or papal teaching, on this question of the beatific vision. Um, and in fact, it is cited by the Catechism of the Catholic Church. This is in paragraph 1023. Uh, 1023. Uh, the Catechism cites precisely this bull of Benedict uh, XII on the beatific vision at the outset of its own treatment of heaven and eternal life. So what Benedict XII is concerned to do in his immediate object, his, his sort of first line of business or first agenda item, is to reject the teaching of his predecessor, John XXII. Uh, it's not uh, an accident that after John XXII, there was not another pope named John for 500 years. This, um, uh, my math was never, never my strong suit, 600 years. Um, thank you, yeah. Um, I'm a theologian, right? I mean, I'm not a, not a mathematician. Um, uh, because John XXII was, was not a well-liked uh, pope for a variety of reasons. And, um, John had had a view about the timing of the beatific, beatific vision, uh, which Benedict XII then forcefully rejects in this very important text um, on the beatific uh, vision, which is actually called Benedictus Deus. He doesn't name it after himself, Benedict, but he named it after God, right? Blessed God, okay, um, is the first two words of the Latin text, okay? So John had held that, this is the crucial point, John had held that we do not receive, no human being receives the beatific vision, the immediate vision of God that brings full blessedness and rest until the general resurrection. Okay? There's a line in the book of Revelation. I want to say it's in chapter 8, but that's correctable. 
whether the souls under the altar in heaven, crying, how long, O Lord, how long? And John the 22nd had said, those are the souls of the, those who will be blessed, of the, of the, of the redeemed, of the saved, awaiting the resurrection of the body when their blessedness can be fully accomplished or realized. Okay? And he was quite, John the 22nd was, was not uh, shy about his views. He was quite emphatic about this. And uh, this came at the end of a long theological controversy about it, which we won't uh, go into. So Benedict then becomes pope and says, not the exactly first thing he did, but something he did pretty quickly. I now declare, and he says, as apostolic truth to stand for all time that my predecessor was wrong. Okay. Now, he doesn't put it in quite those direct terms. It's very clear that that's what he's talking about. No, there is no waiting until the end time and the general resurrection for beatitude. Those who are prepared for beatitude upon departing this life will attain it immediately. The full blessedness of the vision of God will be given immediately to those who are prepared for it when they depart this life and then to those who are not prepared for it, but who depart this life in grace, and when their purification is completed, they will then receive it prior to the resurrection of the body at the end of time. And that remains Catholic doctrine, and in fact is cited as such in the Catechism of the Catholic Church um, under John Paul II. In the process of making this fundamental definition, that there's no waiting for blessedness uh, until the general resurrection, Benedict XII also makes a strong statement about what it is that we see when we see the Lord. And what we see, he emphasizes, is the divine essence, the divine essence or nature. And we see the divine essence immediately this is crucial, immediately, that is, without any creature, anything created whatsoever, not just creature meaning a dog or a cat, but any created reality, including our own concepts or mental machinery or, or, or uh, furniture, we see the divine essence immediately without anything created between the divine essence and our, ourselves. That's the fundamental claim that Benedict XII wants to make. That's not a new idea. Uh, we'll see momentarily. It's in St. Thomas, among others. Uh, but that's his understanding that he wants to make emphatically as a dogmatic point for, uh, for Catholic teaching of what it is to be blessed. It's to see the divine essence. It's to see God's own divinity, if you like, without any intervening creature. It is to see the one divine nature of the three divine persons. I'll quote Benedict XII. These souls, the blessed, even now, before the general resurrection, these souls have seen and do see the divine essence with an intuitive vision, even face to face, without the mediation of any creature. That's where the catechism citation ends, but he adds an important phrase or two. Without the mediation of any creature, by way of object of vision, no creature that is in some sense an object that comes between us and the divine nature itself. 
the divine essence, he goes on to say, manifests itself immediately to them, to the blessed, plainly, clearly, and openly. And Benedict says, this simply is eternal life. The immediate manifestation of the divine essence to our souls. This is blessedness. This is the rest for which our hearts long. Augustine's Confessions, the first paragraph, right? Our hearts are restless until they rest in you. What brings this rest? Seeing the divine essence. Now, this might seem like a rather bloodless, dispassionate, and austere view of heaven and blessedness. It has certainly seemed that way to many. Surely we want to see the divine persons with whom we can and already do have a personal relationship, a relation of friendship. We don't simply want to see their essence. In particular, we want to see the Lord Jesus and all his fleshly incarnate reality, whom 1 John promises we will see as he is. I'm going to come back to that in a moment. But we need to be clear that the notion of seeing the divine essence is quite basic to Catholic doctrine on eternal life. This is inescapable. Um, it's um, not doing justice to establish Catholic teaching to sort of circumvent this or go on as though it were not a matter that needed to be addressed. So let's think about this a little bit. According to this teaching, we see the divine essence immediately without any created intermediary whatsoever. This means that the vision of God's essence can't be with our eyeballs, okay? I mean, this is a vision in some other and more uh, direct sense because our eyeballs require intermediaries in order to see things as part of our cognitive machinery as um, our uh, existence is currently constituted. So it has to be an intellectual vision. It has to be vision uh, in a, an analogous sense. A vision by which the soul is joined immediately, again, to God's own nature, to God's own divinity, to what makes God God, or more accurately, what makes the three divine persons God. That is what is immediately joined to our own soul, our own mind. So what's happening here is that God himself becomes the very means by which we know God and thereby know ourselves and everything else. We come to see everything as God sees it, even if not with the infinitude with which God sees it. This is an inconceivably intimate form of union with and if you give it time to sink in, I think the profundity of it may, may get hold of you, even though it seems rather abstract and austere to begin with. This union can only happen when God graciously pours his own divinity into our souls. When God graciously unites his very godness, if you will, with us, miserable, fallible instruments uh, that we have been in this world. This can only happen by the grace of God, in other words, by the, the free 
generosity of God towards us. It is quite beyond the capacity of any creature. So let me give you a couple of lines from St. Thomas on this. This is from question 12 of part one of the Summa Theologia. When an intellect, a created intellect, sees God through his essence, that's what we're talking about. When an intellect, created intellect, sees God through his essence, the divine, the essence of God, the very essence of God, ipsa sensia dei, the very essence of God becomes the intelligible form of the intellect. Now, the metaphysics of knowledge that's going on here, I won't take time to elaborate on. The point is that we need, the intellect needs, our created minds need to be formed in some way in order to see anything, right? And so we see chairs, our mind is formed by the chair, we see, so we abstract the concept of chair, we see other humans, our mind is formed by the humans, we extract the concept of human. God's essence becomes that thing by which we know. God himself. Which is quite astonishing if you think about it. And according to St. Thomas in this passage, that is exactly what we learn from 1 John 3. Uh, he quotes two passages. The first is, is Revelation 21. The city will need no light to shine upon it, for the glory of God will be its light. And he glosses this, the glory of God will illuminate it, namely the city of God. And he says, namely, the society of the blessed who see God. And then he goes on to say, this light, this glory of God immediately joined to our souls makes us deiform. Efficiuntur deiformis. It renders us formed like God. It deifies us. And he says, he, in case you don't know deiformis, reading the Latin, he says, that is like unto God. Okay? Deus similes. Just as John 1, chapter 3 says, he concludes, when he appears, we will be like him for we will see him as he is. So St. Thomas takes that passage in John to refer fundamentally to seeing the divine essence, not immediately at least in his exegesis of it here, to seeing Jesus. All right, so, so far so good. You can save up your questions uh, for the question period about that. But this raises an obvious question um, which has certainly been thought about a good deal. Jesus, after all, is a human being. He's also God, but his humanity is a created reality, and it's in and through his humanity and on account of it that he saves us. So what is being said in this I, you know, view that that it's by seeing the divine essence that we're rendered blessed. What's being said then about the place of Jesus in our beatitude, in, in, our, uh, in our vision of God? Do we leave him behind? Uh, since after all, um, no created reality can serve as an intermediary um, between us and God. That would, that would seem like the wrong way to go. I mean, but if it's simply divine essence that renders us blessed, then what else are we going to say? 
that's the sort of conundrum a lot of people have thought about. It seems to me that the basic way we need to think about this or, or can think about it, um, this is the Catholic both and of which Jonah, uh, Father Jonah uh, spoke yesterday evening, um, is that we don't have to choose between being immediately united with the divine essence and being blessed by our vision of the humanity of Jesus, or Jesus in his humanity is a better way to put it, because, here's the argument I would make in its bare outlines, because blessedness has to perfect the will as well as the intellect. It has to perfect our union with God, has to perfect our love for him as well as our knowledge of him. All the more because it's by love, not yet by knowledge, that we are already immediately joined to God in this life. So beatitude, blessedness, must depend on our intellectual vision of God, which is what Benedict XII and St. Thomas before him are talking about, but it also depends on our will and our heart being aflame with the love of God, with love for Jesus. Our love for Jesus, our love for the crucified, which is drawn out of us, as Father Jonah nicely put it last night, by the glory of his wounds, which he never leaves behind, is itself constitutive of, not solely constitutive of, but a necessary condition, if you like, for our beatitude. Another way to look at this is in terms of John 1. Our blessedness consists in being joined immediately to God's godness, to the divine essence. But how does that happen? It happens by sharing completely or perfectly in Jesus' own fullness of human love for the Father. From his fullness we have all received, John 1.16. It's a text that is really important in St. Thomas's and other Catholic teaching on our salvation and on our blessedness. Father Jonah said last night, there's one priest in one context, he said in another context, there's one Christian, Jesus. What are we? We are those who are participants in the grace and glory of Jesus, human soul. From his fullness we have all received. And our beatitude, this is the volitional or, or willing side of it, as opposed or distinguished from the knowledge side of it, our beatitude is our full and perfected participation in the grace and glory of Jesus' human soul in his love for the Father. All right, um, got a couple minutes here. Um, as I mentioned, Benedict XII says, we attained to blessedness before the general resurrection at the end of time. Um, so there's some issues here. Okay? Um, how is it that the separated soul, of which Father John spoke uh, this morning, which creates various metaphysical and theological, raises various metaphysical and theological questions, even, even the very notion of the separated soul. Um, how is it that the separated soul, which 
is not a person and not a human being because it has no body, and a human being has body. St. Thomas, by the way, is very explicit about this. I mean, the, the separated soul will become a person when it's a human person when it's reunited with its body. I mean, this is, um, this is essential. Uh, he's very clear about this. Um, so how is it then that according to the, the teaching of, of, of the church, which has certainly never been, um, uh, you know, as it were, corrected or rescinded, how is it that this separated soul can enjoy the fullness of blessedness even though it has yet to um, you know, recover its full personal existence uh, by being uh, joined to its body? I mean, this is why John XXII took the view that he did, which Benedict then so forcefully uh, repudiated. Um, we have to wait for beatitude to the general resurrection because um, we won't have our bodies till then and we can't be fully blessed without our bodies. There are a number of different ways of thinking about this. Uh, and I mean, I, Father John talked about, you know, there's certain tensions in the teaching that we have to sort of take in and, and, and sort of accept and then try to work with them. Uh, I think this is certainly an area where there's a tension in, uh, in Catholic teaching that we um, need to accept and, and, and think about. Um, on the one hand, beatitude belongs to the soul apart from the body. Uh, and yet um, the human existence is not complete um, and the final state of humanity is not reached uh, until the resurrection uh, of the body. So how are we going to fit those two things uh, together? St. Thomas says, he, he wrestles rather hard with this problem actually um, in Primus Secundae 4, um, and his basic solution to oversimplify uh, the, the point is that um, the beatitude of the, of the soul will not be intensively increased by its reunion with the body, but it will be extensively increased. That is to say, it will spread to uh, the body. Uh, now, not everyone has thought, I mean, uh, including in the 13th century, um, let alone after, that this is an entirely satisfactory solution to the problem. But that's, a, that's a, uh, one way to, uh, to look at it and has a certain obvious uh, force to it, because um, we know the difference between uh, intensive and extensive uh, happiness. We know the difference between intensive and extensive versions of things. So that's one point to think about in connection with uh, the resurrection of the body, that certainly in Catholic teaching, uh, in, very clearly in the New Testament, there is no final destiny for human beings apart from the resurrection of the body. And this goes again to what Father Corbett was talking about this morning, that the human being is not a soul waiting to escape its body in, in the Christian vision of it. The human being is uh, a whole, a union, a unity, um, which can exist in its fullness only in that union. And that means that if we're going to attain the final state of glory that God intends for us, as St. Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 15, and this is the second point, the only other point I want to make about the resurrection of the body. First of all, if there are difficulties about how to think about its relationship to the separated soul, that's point one. Point two, and this is really crucial, there is no final beatitude for us 
without the resurrection of the body. And that means of this body. Okay? This mortal body, St. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15, 53 and following, this mortal body must put on immortality. This perishable body must put on imperishability. And what I want to underline is the definite antecedent. This body must put on immortality. As I like to say to my undergraduate students when I talk to them about this, you better get used to your body, okay? Um, because you're going to have it forever. And you're going to have it eternally. As St. Thomas puts it and others uh, in thinking about this, the body that rises on the last day is numerically the same as the body we now possess. And that's the, that is the most direct kind of unity you can have. It's not simply the same in kind or the same in attributes. It is one and the same body. Glorified, perfected, lots of speculation in the tradition about what that perfection looks like. Augustine, City of God 22, will we have all the hair we ever grew? Yes, we will, um, you know, and so on and so forth. Um, we, you know, that's, that's open to obvious, uh, you know, discussion, but uh, that's, not, that's not doctrine. But that we, that we receive in the resurrection the very body we now possess, that is doctrine. That's in the Bible. That's fundamental. And it's so basic to a Christian understanding of things. If you compare, again, going back to Father Corbett's talk this morning, this is the last point I'll make. If you compare the vision of the human being in, in Catholicism to that in the great religions of Asia, okay, Hinduism and Buddhism, uh, it's so striking, the radical commitment of the Catholic vision to the human body and to its, its value and its, the, the, the absolute imperative of treating it properly. Um, you ever seen the movie Gandhi? Right? That, I mean, your parents were probably children when, uh, when it came out um, back in my day. But um, there's a great scene at the beginning of, of Gandhi's you know, funeral pyre. Okay? And this is you know, how, how in, in uh, traditional Hinduism, that's what you do with the human body. You burn it up because it's nothing. Okay? It's, it's simply the vessel for the Atman, you know, the, the soul, which has now been released from it. Compare that with the book of Tobit, for example, in the, in the Old Testament. What is the great merit of Tobit? The seventh corporal work of mercy, right? He buries the dead. At, you know, at, at da in danger of his own life, okay, in the circumstances under which he's living, he buries the dead. When, when a Jew dies, he goes and buries him. Human body, even in death, is to be treated with reverence. Uh, and why? Uh, because it will rise on the last day, and it will be the body that you have forever. I went a little longer than I intended, but there's some time for questions. Thanks. Fire away. Yeah. So 
You mentioned, and I will find something on this out, as part of the regulation, we know the divine essence. Could you speak, I know like various circles like particularly in the Eastern thought, they make it very clear, and we also see in like the Athanasian Creed, we do not comprehend the divine essence. Yeah. Could you speak kind of a difference between like knowing versus comprehending? Okay. Yeah. Um, this is in fact, when you say Eastern, I take you mean Eastern Christian. Yeah, so, but, uh, sorry, here. Um, the question was, uh, how, what's the difference between knowing the divine essence and comprehending it? Um, and as you're probably aware, I mean, you meant Eastern Christian, I assume. That's in the Eastern Christian tradition, especially in its um, development since the late Middle Ages, um, this is viewed as a, as a fundamental disagreement with the Western uh, tradition because... Um, in the, particularly in the teaching of, um, of St. Gregory Palmas uh, in, the, in the Eastern Church in the 14th century, he emphatically denies, uh, following some, uh, some other patristic antecedents, particularly his reading of Dionysius the Areopagite, who's always a little hard to figure out, but um, uh, influential on everybody and you know, whose meaning is, is not pinned down by anybody. Um, but he, he thinks that we cannot see the divine essence at all, okay? You know, and, and the divine essence simply transcends any creaturely apprehension, right? So what we see is the divine energies, but these are God, and so we have a vision of God even though we don't have a vision of the divine essence. It's very clear in the Western tradition, by contrast, um, that we see the divine essence. I mean, that's, you know, that's just emphatically clear in Aquinas and, and many other uh, dogmatic and theological texts. We see, but we don't comprehend. The basic difference here is simply between knowing the divine essence in a creaturely way and knowing it in a divine way. So we don't, we know, we are immediately joined to and thereby know the infinite essence of God, but we don't know it infinitely. So there's a difference between the divine mode of knowing and the created mode of knowing. So we know the same thing, but we don't know it in the same way. And one could argue that that preserves the kind of distinction that, uh, in, a, in a usable way that, um, that the Eastern tradition uh, is also worried about, that, um, that even, even deified, okay, or rendered deiformes um, in St. Thomas's language, um, we don't know God as God knows God. You want to say more about that? Uh, so next question, sorry, next question. Okay. okay, sorry. So we're not gonna do we're not gonna do follow-up questions. Yeah, that's fine. Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, well, first of all, let me just express my admiration at how well you did this morning the six corporal works of mercy and brought in the seven times of the period. <laughs> uh, but, but on that note, it's great. And uh, can you explain um, burial procedures? I understand that relatively recent in history, the Catholic Church has become okay with cremation, as long as you still insure the ashes as opposed to spreading them. Yeah. Um, and of course, this along with the fact that you know our bodies decompose even even after uh, treatment um, and of course there are those who can't be buried at all. Uh, so the body certainly the body is certainly are um, dispersed yeah. in some sense. Yeah. Uh, can you explain to me uh, why we aren't allowed to disperse ashes, for example? You priests, can you explain this? 
Look, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you what I think, and then, 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 then the experts will actually, will actually explain it. Um, the church did not, for, for most of its history, allow cremation um, because it was seen as contrary to faith in the resurrection of the body. Not metaphysically contrary, because everyone knows that a body decomposes and that a person who died thousands of years ago, you know, that the, the, the earthly elements that made up their body are now, you know, part of the soil or whatever. And that God can still raise up that body um, from, uh, from the ashes, uh, if you like, or from the dirt that, uh, that it has become. Everybody knew that. But that natural process uh, of decay is a different thing from the deliberate destruction of a body. And cremation is a deliberate destruction of a body. Now the church says it's okay. okay I'm just a humble layperson, um, but I don't intend to be cremated. Um, now the, the two fathers here will explain what's actually going on, and then, then go ahead. Well, thank you. That's a pretty tough question. I, I think that a lot of it has to do with perceived symbolism. I, I, when I was a, a beginning graduate studies at Freeburg, uh, I was there for a week and then someone died. Uh, and um, <laughs> no yeah, cause effect there. I mean, when I was a parishioner in, in Bern, and she was just new to the country, she was from the Philippines, and uh, so her, her mother died. And she said, "Father, can you bury her?" And I said, "Sure." Uh, and so she said, "Well, go to this, you know, funeral establishment." And I said, "Well, they have stuff there for mass." And she said, "Sure." So I go, and uh, there it is. Uh, except that the place was um, actively built by people who were explicitly building the place for cremation to show contempt for the doctrine of the resurrection. <laughs> that was the whole point of the building the place. So I come in and I don't know any of this, neither does the woman. I thought I had an hour for mass. It turned out I had 10 minutes before the next group of people. So it was quite horrible. Uh, mm -hmm. Anyway, the reason I, I mention that is because the place was had an eerie vibe to it. You know, I, I, I can't say more than that, but it had an eerie vibe. A place that was dedicated to showing, demonstrating that there could be no resurrection from the dead was an odd place for a Christian funeral. Mm -hmm. um, Anyway, uh, that she was cremated on the spot, causing trauma to everyone, and it was uh, one of my worst pastoral days ever. But, uh, but, it, but there is something deeply intuitive and symbolic about creation, especially undertaken with a hostile intent. And I think it's that that the church is reacting against. Also, frankly, it is, uh, so that, that's what I think is at stake. There's also a deeper intuition that God can raise the dead from all elements of the world, but that's quite a trick. You know? And I, I don't think it's that which is the key here. I think it's natural human symbolism and preserving the mystery of the resurrection by preserving what you can of the integrity of the body. That's my guess. Yeah. Well, that makes sense. There's a question back here. I have a couple of thoughts swirling around, so yeah. we'll be able to okay. bring them all together. So, 
missing theory account would be sufficient. And the first thing I was thinking about was the gift altered piece, like the missing adoration token. Yep. And then I exactly. think about Revelation 21. Yep. And then just for the sake of argument, assume that man has two ends. Mm -hmm. Okay. This account seems to sort of lack the force that elevates and perfects man's natural end. It seems like the, the natural end just kind of like swept under the rug and gave up this sort of. To, to me, it sometimes comes across like this Gnostic view of what heaven is, rather than like the mystic adoration of the Lamb, like human flourishing, the city fullest elevated and perfected as the new Jerusalem. Um, I was wondering if you could kind of lean into that criticism. Okay. What did you say about that? Sure. So it's the, the classic understanding of the immediate vision of the divine essence that has a kind of Gnostic flavor for you, right? Yeah, okay. No, I get it. Um, I definitely uh, get that. Um, well, what I was trying to say, and this is not really a, an answer to your question, just a, a kind of slight elaboration of, of what I gave you a few minutes ago. What I was trying to say was that the Ghent altarpiece which, if you don't know it, um, is something you really need to, to be familiar with. Um, uh, barely escaped the Nazis and whatnot, but uh, it's this beautiful, uh, enormous um, uh, you know, depiction of the adoration uh, you know, by the blessed of, of Christ as a lamb pouring out his blood uh, for uh, the salvation of the world. Um, uh, what I was trying to get at was simply that that has to be right, okay? That, that any understanding of, the, of beatitude which sees the humanity of Christ as an afterthought or even worse as the way but not the truth and the life um, can't be right. I mean, there, there has to be a way in which we can hold together both the immediate vision of the divine essence as a necessary condition for beatitude, but also the love of the Lamb <laughs> as a necessary condition for beatitude. So that's my basic sort of way of, of dealing with that. That doesn't get the, the twofold end thing. That's a, that's a further question. Um, it's a natural end of the body resurrection? No, I'm thinking more about like the flourishing. I mean, maybe it's like I don't think I wind up with both. No, go ahead, go ahead. You finish, and then uh, then I'll let Father Jonathan take it. I don't think I wind up with Crusade about the idea of, like, intangible good, how to be looked up until, like, final man. But there, there's something there. Like, there's something kind of unfortunate about, like, when I look at the Gantt altarpiece, and I read what Thomas has to say, there seems to be a disconnect. Right. I do. Oh, I absolutely know what you mean. However, um, Thomas does have other things to say about this, um, and particularly um, about the role of the love of Jesus in the beatific vision, particularly in his um, commentary on John. Okay, so look around. If memory serves, around number nineteen fifty of the Marietti edition of uh, the commentary on John, you may find some helpful things. Um, but no, I, I this is you're, you're concerned about exactly what I'm concerned about here, and what I'm trying to sort of uh, say. It's a both and thing. There's no beatitude without the immediate vision of God, but the immediate vision of God doesn't account for everything that we need to account for when it comes to beatitude. And I think the, the distinction between the beatitude of the will, which is not fully realized by the intellect's immediate vision of God, uh, and, the, and what, what the intellect sees is an, a crucial aspect of this. Uh, go ahead, Father. Yeah. Well, I was actually just going to throw it across the room, because Father Simon has been spending the past like academic year swimming in this question more or less. Great. You can also just pass. <laughs> 
Let's hear it, Father Simon. I wasn't here for all of your talk, Professor Marshall, so I apologize if I'm repeating what you've already said. But I think it's important to recognize that when you, that God, everything that is good in this world is in God, in an infinite way. And that the beatific vision means that you have that in the deepest part of who you are. So, like, to pit, to say that once you possess the divine essence, you lack something that's truly human, is to misunderstand what that means to possess the divine essence. But creation itself is in the divine essence, so it seems like why would we create if it's already self-sufficient, you know? But there seems to be this, this importance within the fact that he did create, and it is a part of his essence, but there's still this multiplicity that flows, like, flows from it. Mm -hmm. Like you read Hopkins' God's grandeur, and you're like, wow, like these things aren't, like you said, it was an obstacle to seeing God. Um, I'm not quite so convinced by that view of the created things of this world. Like there seems to be like a beauty to them and how it's not an obstacle, it's like it's how we know him. He ordained it that way. I'll just say one thing and then um, nothing more. I'll just take I think that if you push this objection too far, you end up introducing imperfection into God, which is the big problem with uh, Grise and the new natural law theorists, is that if God is not enough, then God had to create. And that we have to say that God's beatitude is so rich and infinite that creation is a mere unnecessary but fitting overflow of that. I've got to say something more. Okay. Um, <laughs> you know that in 15 minutes, everybody's going to say everything. <laughs> uh, just one further comment about what you said about the obstacle thing. Um, the, the, certainly what, what Benedict Twelfth and St. Thomas are saying is not that the created world as we now experience it is an obstacle to knowing God, but rather that if we are to grasp or apprehend or be suffused with the quid est of God, no created medium is going to be adequate to that. Only, only that thing itself will be adequate to it. So it's only in the immediate vision that any created intermediary um, it would be a, an obstacle. It's not in this world that a created intermediary would be an obstacle. That's all I wanted to say. So um, in 15 minutes, again, we'll have a closed session. So it means you can just Come loaded for beer, ask whatever questions you want. Um, so, feel free to have some coffee. Uh, just to say again, um, when you come back into this room for the public little session, bring nothing but have a wrapper. All right? They're just, they make a lot of noise and you can hear <laughs> That's true. That's true. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you.